Let's give it up for our choir first and then our drama team. Good job, guys. Good job. I would make one suggestion to the choir. Um, if Roy Ann, who was singing with Richard, if they could choreograph the whole thing Richard does, if they could work that together, have the same moves, Roy Ann, what do you think? Roy Ann's out there going, ain't no way, Pastor. <laughs> oh, that was awesome, guys. Awesome. Good music, good worship, good message in the song, good message in that skit. Some of you guys are little toes out there, but we need every one of you to make the body work. I'm pretty much the mouth, I guess. Okay. We're in a series on extreme faith, and uh, we have learned that the dominating feature in the life of every Christian ought to be faith. Faith, if there is one part of your life as a Christian that you want to place as a priority to work on to be a better Christian, it is your faith. Now, the reason that faith needs to be the dominating feature in our life is because we are asked continually through the Scriptures, and not only through the Scriptures, but as the Spirit deals with us from day to day as Christians, we're asked all the time to believe in things we can't see. To believe in things we can't look at with our human eyes or touch with our human hands. Let's look at what the Bible says. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 and 7, he's talking to the church there, he's talking to us this morning. Walk by what? Faith, not by. And in Galatians 2.20, we are told to live our lives as Christians by faith in the Son of God. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, we know this verse very well. It asks the question, what is faith? It is the confident assurance that what we hope for is actually going to happen. It is the evidence of things. It isn't the thing, but it is evidence of things we cannot yet see. And then if you go down in that same chapter of Hebrews 11, down to verse 16, a very powerful statement there. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. How many of you were kind of hoping to please God with your life? The Bible says you can't do it if you don't have faith. God requires us to put our trust entirely in things we can't see, but that doesn't mean that our faith is blind. It is not a blind faith. Our faith is based on evidence, and the evidence we have is the anchor of the Christian life, and that is the Scriptures, the Word of God. I cannot emphasize enough. I cannot tell you enough. I cannot push this point enough. I think familiarity breeds contempt, which means that we hear something so many times it just goes past us when it's talked about, but I want to remind you that if you want your faith to increase, you need to get into the scriptures. You need to know what God said. What did God say? And then have faith in that. In this sermon series, we are studying a passage of scripture in the book of Mark, chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. I'm not going to read all of that to you. But we will unfold these scriptures as we go through this series. 
The setting of this story, Jesus has been up on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember we talked about that last week? We didn't go into a lot of detail because there's so much to be said there, but just suffice it to say that Jesus had been up on a mountain with uh, his um, closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, and while they're up on that mountain, two Old Testament saints show up, Moses and Elijah. And they are up there, and uh, the glory of God uh, shines forth, and you can read about it uh, at, your, at your Bible study time, and uh, they're all up there together, and all of a sudden, uh, that passes away, and it's time to come down off the mountain. How many of you know sometimes it's time to come down off the mountain? And now I'm like Peter. Peter wanted to just live up there. As a matter of fact, he told Jesus, why don't we build three churches, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. We'll just all stay up here. Let's don't go back down there to those losers in the valley. Let's stay up here. When I'm on the mountaintop spiritually, I got to tell you something, I love it. But you know what that is? It's a foretaste of glory divine. It's a foretaste of a day to come when we will get up on the mountain and stay on the mountain. Isn't it wonderful that God just gives us a little hors d'oeuvre of heaven once in a while. Now, hors d'oeuvres are good, but I, I want that main meal, don't you? Um, there's some food, I believe you can starve to death eating it. You know, I want that main meal. I can't wait till we get over on the other side and we're up on the mountain and we stay there in the presence of God, but we're not there right now. So there are going to be times when you're on the mountain, then you've got to come down. So Jesus comes down off the mountain with Peter, James, and John. Well, if he's got three disciples with him, if you do a little arithmetic, you know there's nine left down in the valley. So when they come back down into the valley off the mountain, they see the disciples. Jesus sees his other nine disciples in a debate with the scribes. Now, the scribes were church people who didn't know Jesus. Did you know there are church people who don't know Jesus? How many of you know religion isn't what we need? Jesus is what we need. Matter of fact, I'll tell you about religion. It'll make you mean, make you ornery. Can I just say some of the meanest folks I ever met go to church? I think I just did. I remember one church I pastored, there was a man down the street that didn't go to church, ran a little service station, and uh, I would go down there and sit with him once in a while because he treated me a whole lot better than some church folk did. Y'all want me to move off of this and get on something else? Isn't it the truth? That's why we can't be that kind of church. We can't be that kind of church. I don't want us to be a judgmental church. I don't want us to be a church that's always looking at everybody, finding fault, criticizing and judging everybody. So they come down off the mountain. Jesus sees his disciples in an argument with the religious people, the scribes. And I love this scene, and I know I talked about it last week, but i got to mention it again. Jesus walks up to those scribes. His disciples are over here. Those scribes, those religious people are over there. Jesus stands in between them and goes, what, what are you talking to my disciples about? He will cover you. He will cover you when you're being attacked. He will come against you. He, he will stand there when others are coming against you. Look for his covering." 
Look for it, expect it, pray for it, ask for it. The covering of Jesus. Jesus, and now listen now, when you're studying the Bible, don't just scan over something like that. It's so easy to just scan right over that event where Jesus looks at those scribes and he goes, what are you talking to my disciples about? See, what we want to do in our Bible study is we want to just read that and go say, okay, Jesus asked them, what are you talking about? No, 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 no. You got to dig in right there. Because he becomes the cleft in the rock. He becomes their high tower. He becomes their defense, their shield, their buckler. He becomes their armor. He goes, I know, they, I know they're a motley crew, but they're my disciples. They're my followers. And you are his followers. You are his followers. And he will cover you. You say, well, I just don't even want to need to be covered. Well, if you follow Jesus, you're going to need some covering, I'm telling you. You're going to need it. So Jesus looked at the scribes and goes, what are you, what are you uh, asking my disciples? And they just kind of give it this number. And the disciples have failed, and, and uh, of course Jesus knows all things, but he still looks at them kind of like, well, they don't say anything. They stand there like that. And all of a sudden, a father, a daddy, comes out of the crowd. The Bible says he's humble and he's reverent, but Matthew tells us he shouts this. And he says, teacher, and I'm putting this in my own words. Teacher, when I saw your disciples, I assumed you were with them because every other time I've ever seen your disciples, you were always with them. And my son here is possessed with an evil spirit and it makes him unable to speak. It makes him mute. And when this spirit seizes him, when this evil power seizes him, Lord, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and his body becomes very rigid. And Jesus, I ask your disciples, I saw that you were not with them, but I asked them if they would to cast this demon out of my son and they could not do it. And when they could not do it, Jesus said something very seemingly harsh. Jesus in holy frustration. You do know there's a holy frustration. But can't none of y'all out there have it. Only God can have it. See, I I see some of y'all right now going, oh, oh, so when I lay them out, I can just go, that was holy. (laughs) That's God's business right there. But Jesus looks at them and goes, Oh, unbelieving generation. Now, why wasn't Jesus with these disciples? Well, you say he was up on the mountain. I understand that. But why was he up on the mountain and why was he not with them? I think there were multiple purposes. Of course, the, the, the mountain of transfiguration has so many messages in it, so many lessons in it. I did a series on that several years ago. I may pull that back out and do that again. But... But we ask, why wasn't Jesus with them? Now, remember what we said last week. Jesus, at this point in the scripture, in the book of Matthew chapter 9, is right at the end of his time on the earth. Jesus knows that in a few minutes, in a few months rather, they're going to arrest him. They're going to judge him. They're going to crucify him. They're going to bury him. He is going to rise from the dead. And then in 40 days, he's going to ascend into heaven. So Jesus knows he is not, listen, he is not going to always be there with them so they can see him. So he has gone away 
and left them on their own in a sense that they cannot see him. Of course, the Holy Spirit is there with them. And he is trying to say to them, you need to learn how to live by faith and power even though you cannot see me. Now, church, that is the word of the Lord to us right here today in this sermon series. You have to learn to trust him. You have to learn to believe in him. You have to learn to have faith in him even though there are times in your life when there's absolutely no human sense evidence that he's anywhere around. You can't see him, you can't smell him, you can't hear him, you can't touch him. He seems to be nowhere around. You have to learn to have faith in those times. Jesus cried out, O unbelieving generation, in verse 19 of chapter 9 of Mark. He could have been talking to the crowd. I mean, their faith is fickle. Because when Jesus come down off the mountain of transfiguration, when he came down, sometimes I get to preaching, I just forget all good grammar. I think I just forgot it right then. He came down off the mountain. The Bible says the people flocked to him. He was their miracle man. He was their healer. He was their deliverer. So they flocked to him. Now, you have to understand this same crowd of the They're the ones going to cry crucify him in just a few months. So their faith was fickle and stable. As long as they were getting what they needed, they loved him. That'll preach right there. Um, He could have been addressing this father because this father of this demonic son, the son who is uh, possessed by a demon, he admits later that his faith certainly isn't mature and he needs help with his faith. But Jesus' words are focused on the followers. Now, now if Jesus' words are focused on the followers, that applies right here in this house today. If you have received Jesus as your personal Savior, you are a follower of Christ, then I want to tell you that the word of the Lord is to you today about having faith when you cannot see. Now, I want to talk to you just a little bit this morning about the suffering of our Savior. And when I talk about the suffering of our Savior, your mind, maybe it goes straight to a movie like The Passion of the Christ. I gotta tell you about that movie. How many of y'all seen The Passion of the Christ? I gotta tell you something. (laughs) I've seen that movie one time. It's hard to look at that movie. It's hard for me. I I gotta tell you, I thought what would happen with that movie is... um, About every Easter, I'd get that movie out and watch it, and probably it would be good for me to do that, but i got to tell you something. It's hard to watch that movie because of the accuracy, I believe, probably more accurate than any movie that's ever been made about the suffering of Jesus, his physical suffering, but there's also other kinds of suffering Jesus goes through. So we just think about the suffering of Jesus And when you think about the many things Christ suffered, listen carefully to me. The unbelief of his own disciples had to be one of the toughest things for Jesus to deal with. Now look, I I have failed many times. I have sinned. I have done wrong. I have made promises I didn't keep. I have not shown up when you thought I would. 
I have disappointed my family. I've disappointed my wife before. So when it comes time to trust me, I can understand why somebody, and y'all look so holy out there. I want to tell y'all look holy while I'm saying all this about me. Um, when I say, when it comes time to trust me, and, and, and maybe somebody doubts me, I got to tell you, even though I know I'm imperfect and really deserve to be doubted because I'm so human, it still hurts a little bit. Y'all with me? When you know you're telling the truth and you know you're doing the right thing and people don't trust you, even though I don't really deserve anywhere near the kind of trust Jesus would deserve. Y'all understand what I'm saying? But what does it feel like when you're the Lord Jesus Christ who is always worthy of our faith, always worthy of our trust. I want you to think about Jesus. He came down to us in Bethlehem. Where was Jesus before Bethlehem? He was up in heaven. So Jesus was used to being the son of God in heaven, and, and he was accustomed to perfect angel trust. Angel trust. Isn't that, isn't that something? I mean, he was in an environment in heaven where all the angels, 110%, if that's possible, trusted him. They were, they were angels that loved him with perfection. They were angels that, that were devoted to him, loyal to him, never doubted him. And then his father looks at him right after the Garden of Eden incident, and he says, son, I'm going to need you to go down there and save these people. And so Jesus, the Bible says, that his will was involved, and he willingly came down to us from that angelic loyalty, that angelic trust, that angelic love, that angelic loyalty, and, and faith and confidence. He left that and came down here to us. Now, when he came down here to us, he took off his robe of glory and put on a robe of flesh and became one of us. And the Bible says he became one of us to the point that he was tempted in all points, just like we are. It's hard for some of us to deal with, but it's in your Bible. And so Jesus comes down here, and he's down here not because he did something wrong. He's down here because we did something wrong. And he comes down here and lives a perfect life, we kill him, put him on a cross, crucify him. Three days later, he rises from the dead. He came down here to do all of that, and yet we have the audacity to have a lack of faith in it. We have the audacity to look at somebody who would do something like that for us and go, mm, I'm just not sure you're going to come through for me this time. Listen carefully to me. Jesus suffered many physical wounds but I believe that the greatest pain Jesus ever felt was the doubt of his own followers. If we can find an off button on that phone, that would be so awesome. We are basically selfish people. It's all about us. It's all about us. We're always focused on and concerned about how we are treated and what is happening in our lives. Do you ever consider the pain you cause him? The suffering you cause him? His words seem harsh. He says, oh, unbelieving generation. 
Luke tells us, because you not only need to study this in the book of Mark, but you need to study what Luke said about it and also what Matthew said about it. Jesus says, or Luke says, that Jesus added perverted generation. And when you study the original language long enough, actually what Jesus says, perverted generation, how did you get so twisted so fast? Isn't it amazing? Now, most of the people I'm talking to right now come to the second service, but let me go ahead and preach this if I can. Isn't it amazing how we can say how committed we are and dedicated we are, and we can turn on a dime? Jesus says it. He says it about Pharaoh Hardison. I'm not pointing any fingers at you. He says it about me. How can you become so doubtful so quickly when I have been so good to you and revealed myself to you? As the words fell from his lips, oh, perverted generation. I wonder if they thought about Deuteronomy. See, these, these, these disciples, the New Testament hadn't even been written. As a matter of fact, this is the New Testament we're preaching out of today as we tell the stories, but they knew the Old Testament. And in Deuteronomy 32, maybe they thought of that verse, and the reason I bring this out is because I, I want you to know that man didn't just get like this, man's always been like this. You understand that Adamic sin nature, don't you? You understand the, the, the depravity of our heart. See, you can never really come to know Jesus the way he wants you to until you understand where you had to come from. Amen? Deuteronomy 32, 5, you are a perverse and crooked generation. How early is that in the Bible? Matthew, Mark, I mean, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's right there early. Deuteronomy 32.5, you are a perverse and crooked generation. Generation. Deuteronomy 32.20, they are a perverse generation, sons in whom there is no faithfulness, no trust. The Bible says that when we come to go into heaven, that the Lord is going to say something like this, enter in thou good and, you know what? Faith-filled. Jesus could say anything. Enter in thou good and um, wonderful in the nursery servant. Enter in thou good and worked at the soup kitchen servant. Enter in thou good and uh, good teacher, good preacher servant. Enter in. Enter. The one word he chooses. Faith-filled. See what's important to him? See what's important to Jesus? Faith-filled Christian. These disciples were fading in their trust. Had they trusted before? Yes. But they weren't trusting here. Had they believed before? Yes, but they weren't believing here. So what is the difference? Listen, the difference is that Jesus wasn't there where he could see them. He wasn't there where he could lock his eyes on them and look at them, and they could lock their eyes on him and look at him. And so they're being tested right here. Listen, listen to me. They are being tested, and I want you to hear the word of the Lord today. They failed. My word to you is that there are going to be times in your life when Jesus seems so far away. It is a test, my brother. It is a test, my sister. It is a test. It is a test. Don't faint in the testing. 
I run into people all the time who just get mad at God just like that and question their faith and question God. The minute life isn't perfect, the minute life deals them any kind of unexpected blow, all of a sudden, I don't even know if serving God is worth it, you know? Come on. Stand in the midst of that storm. Stand in the midst of that darkness. Stand in the midst of that suffering. Stand there and say, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. That's what Job said in his suffering. Job said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. He felt like God had had slain him. He said, I'll trust him anyway. His wife said, why don't you curse God and die? He said, when I have come through this, I'll be like gold tried in the fire. He stayed faithful. He stayed faithful. Listen to me. I'm talking to somebody here this morning. I'm talking to somebody. Don't fail the test. Somebody here is being tested. Somebody here is being led through the valley of the shadow of death. Somebody here is being led through the valley of darkness. Listen to me. Don't fail the test. Stand strong. The Bible says when you've done all you know to do, just stand. Just stand there and trust the word of God. Well, Jesus, let's go with that holy frustration again. He says, how long shall I put up with you? What a contrast. He's been up on the mountain with Moses and Elijah. He comes down to a bunch of unbelieving disciples and goes, how long am I going to put up with you? I got to tell you, if I stand right there, and Jesus stand right there and said that to me, I'd want to crawl in a hole somewhere, wouldn't you? Because my answer to him would be, I sure hope a whole lot longer. He used words like this when his followers would doubt him, oh, you of little faith. And then I love verse 19. Because after Jesus has addressed his disciples and after Jesus has addressed that crowd, and <laughs> you know, Jesus was seeker friendly. After he had called all of them perverted and Then Jesus looked at that daddy and said, bring the boy to me. Bring the boy to me. Now, I want to tell you that some of you are going to get a breakthrough when you quit bringing that thing to everybody else and bring it to Jesus. Jesus said, they can't do anything. These scribes can't do anything. Bring him to me. There are things in my life, I stand here before you a personal testimony that I've hoped for and longed for and and done a little praying for, but I hadn't really brought it to Jesus. I stand here confessing before you today that there are things in my personal life that have been a battle and I have kind of prayed about it and hoped and crossed my fingers. And in this sermon series, God has said to me, Pharaoh Hardison, bring it to me, bring it to me. What is it? You fill in the blank. Bring to me. To this father, he said, bring the boy. What is it in your life? What is it in your life that you keep putting up with, that keeps hanging off of you, that keeps sucking life out of you like a leech, that just keeps... Uh, uh, penetrating your joy and, and taking your joy and you live? What is it? Bring it to Jesus. I don't mean walk up here and say, 
Could y'all pray for me? We'll pray for you, but you got to get in that closet by yourself. And you got to get that Bible and you got to push that plate aside. And you got to get out on your face and cry out to God and bring it to Jesus. You say, that doesn't sound dignified to me. I'd rather be justified than dignified. Amen. Sometimes God will mess up your dignity. And so, when he said, bring him to me, the father was about to get what he wanted, and the demon was about to get what he didn't want. They come face to face with the sovereign Lord Jesus, and it is for the good of the father and for the bad of the demon. And the Bible says in verse 20, that as the father began to bring the boy and approach Jesus with the boy, that the demon went into action. And the reason that happened, the Bible says, when he saw him. Because when he looked at that boy, what was in that boy saw through the eyes of that boy and saw Jesus, and Jesus looked in that boy and saw what he was going to have to battle with. And you say, well, did the demon know who Jesus was? We studied that several weeks ago. Remember I told you demons got better theology than some Christians I know, because they know who Jesus is. And when that demon saw Jesus, he grabbed that boy, he seized him, and slammed him down on the ground. And he began to grind his teeth and foam at the mouth, and his body became rigid. No telling how many times that had happened. Violent trauma. Satan's always come to destroy you. He wants to kill you. He wants to steal from you and kill you and destroy you. This might be uncomfortable preaching for some of us, but in these last days, we need to hear the word of the Lord as we've never heard it before. They tell me that if you're a football player and you get three concussions, you need to just give up the game. There's no, many, no telling how many hundreds of times this demon had slammed this boy's head into the ground and his brain had smashed against the side of his skull. No telling how many times this boy had received concussions. He's trying to kill the boy, but Jesus wouldn't let him. So in the midst of this dangerous, violent display of evil power, I mean, here's the daddy, and here's the boy writhing on the ground, and here stands Jesus. Jesus does the strangest thing. The boy's going through all this violence and trauma, Jesus turns to the father and says, how long has this been going on? And I don't know what the father said to him, but I'd wanted to go, really? You want to know that now? I mean, you need a, back, a medical background <laughs> now? <laughs> Let me tell you what Jesus was doing right there. I mean, did Jesus need to know that to proceed? Was there a statute of limitations on de demons? I mean, uh, Start to say deacons. Demon, the statute, let me tell you. It's just a Freudian slip right there, I'm telling you. I mean, did Jesus go, has he had this thing five years or longer? Because once he's had it five years, I can't do a thing about it then. No. What's the point of this question? Do y'all understand there's nothing in Scripture, there's nothing Jesus said, there's nothing Jesus ever did to just do it and just put it in there and just 
You know everything he said, everything he did had purpose. So why in the world would right now he ask the question, how long has he been like this? I'll tell you why. Listen to me. This is good. I hope you get it. I hope God will help me say it in a way you get it. He was showing that father, I love you and I love this boy and I care about the suffering you've been through and I want you to unfold your story. I want you to tell me your story because you're not coming to a power. You're coming to a person who loves I don't see any other reason why Jesus would have asked that question. Jesus asked that question right then because he wanted to reveal to all of us who would be reading it on this Sunday morning, I am a God of compassion. I am a God who loves you. I am a God who cares about you. Let me say to you who suffer today, Jesus cares about you. He cares about your suffering. He cares about your pain. He cares about those sleepless nights. He cares about your struggle with your children. He cares about the physical pain you carry that nobody knows about. Jesus loves you and cares about you today. Don't you dare question his love for you. He says to this father, How long has he been like this? So why did Jesus ask this question? The Bible tells us because he is a sympathetic and merciful high priest who is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. When we suffer, it touches his heart. And in verse 21, the father answers from childhood. From childhood. Do you remember the story in John 9 when the blind man was there and the people looked at Jesus and said, this man is blind. Uh, Who sinned? Was it him? Was it his father? Was it his mother? You know what Jesus said? Nobody sinned. And then Jesus said something that really ruins a lot of TV preaching. He said his blindness is for the glory of God. Now what does that mean? Here's what that means and then I'm done. Suffering. And I got to tell you, we, we have church growth here and we could, you know, we're looking for more people to come. But I could, I could grow this church a whole lot bigger if I would just start preaching that if you get enough faith and you'll read your Bible enough and you'll pray enough and you'll put enough money in the plate, you won't be sick anymore. I could pack this place out five times on Sunday. Only problem with that is it ain't true. Let me tell you what suffering is. Now I want you to listen to me and, and it's hard to hear. All we want to hear about suffering is deliverance, freedom, freedom, deliverance. And look, How many of you sitting here have suffered before and God set you free from your suffering? I can raise my hand. God has delivered me. God has healed me. I've had cancer three times. I'm cancer free. I know about the healing power of God. I know about the the moving of the Spirit of God in that area and in the realm of freedom and deliverance and healing and all of that. But let me tell you something. You're going to suffer. There's two kind of storms. There's storms you get yourself into like Jonah. 
And then there's storms like the one in the New Testament where Jesus put all his disciples on a boat and kicked them into a storm. Sometimes you're the reason for your storm, and sometimes he just lets you go through a storm. Y'all with me out there? That's good preaching right there. How you react in the storm, in the suffering. Now listen, if I go to the jewelry store and I want to look at diamonds, which I do all the time, (laughs) that's not true. But if I go to a jewelry store and I want to look at diamonds, you know what they're going to do? They're not going to take those diamonds out and spread them across a glass counter. They're not going to take those diamonds out and spread them across some white piece of paper. They're going to get out a piece of black velvet. And they're going to put those diamonds on that black velvet because it is up against the blackness. It is up against the darkness that those diamonds show their, most of their beauty and most of their sparkle. Let me tell you, Christian, something out there. When you suffer, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to shine. It's an opportunity to sparkle. It's an opportunity. See, they're not looking at you when all is well. They're not watching you when you got a job and the paychecks are coming in and and you're healed and, and you're walking high and mighty. They're not watching you then. They're watching you when you're under the gun. They're watching you when the house is on fire. They're watching you when you suffer. And when we see suffering, as an opportunity. Jesus said it's for the glory of God and I believe the deliverance of this boy is for the glory of God and that will be, it will be borne out in the rest of the series. Now listen as I close, this is it. When I pray for people who come up here and say, Pastor, I'm sick, I need you to pray for me and I lay my hands on them, you will hear me say this, you will hear me say, Father, we ask you to heal them for the glory of God. See, because the motivation for your healing for your desire for healing is essential to your healing. Here, here's what I'm saying. When you get your health, if he does heal you, what are you going to do with your health? You say, well, I'm just under the bondage and I just feel burned. Well, what are, you, what are you going to do when he lifts that burden? What are you going to do when he sets you free? What are you going to do with that newfound freedom? What are you going to do with that newfound body? Are you going to use it for the glory of God? So when we pray for the sick around here, we go, Father, heal them, touch them, deliver them, set them free for your glory. For your glory. There's nothing more important than the glory of God. Nothing. So why do you want this touch from God? Why do you, have you thought about that? I just want to be free. But what are you going to do with your freedom? What difference are you going to make with your freedom? Motivation is so important. What did Jesus say? What did Jesus say? Bring the boy to me. What is it that you have that you've been trying to fix? And maybe you've read a verse or two or you've prayed a little prayer, but you had not really brought it to Jesus. Bring the boy to me. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this message, God, from your word, not the messenger, not the messenger, but the message. Is there somebody here who doesn't know Jesus? Probably. 
If you're here today and you've never received him, open your heart right now. We will pray with you in the altar after this service is over. But open your heart right now and say, Jesus, I don't want to go another step without you. I don't want to live another moment without you. I want to receive you as my Savior before I leave this building. I am a sinner. I am lost. I cannot save myself no matter how many good works I do. I need you. You died for my sins. You rose from the dead to give me life. I've been running from you, Lord, and I've been making excuses, but I need you. I'm not going to run anymore. Would you come into my heart? I open the door, and I invite you into my life today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Don't wait. Right now, right there where you are, say, Jesus, no more running, no more excuses. I need you in my heart and life. Those of you who are followers of Jesus, what are you doubting? Stop doubting. You say, I'm suffering, pastor, I'm suffering. Be a diamond on the black velvet. Sparkle in your suffering shine in your suffering. Let them see you stand in the midst of your suffering and say, I will serve the Lord. I will trust the Lord. I will walk in the Lord. I will not become bitter. I will not become angry. I will not become filled with doubt and questions, but I will walk in him and trust him because it is that reaction that makes the believer shine in this dark world. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for everyone who has come. Bless us now as we minister around the altar with those who would like to receive prayer. To your name be glory and honor and praise forever and ever. And the people of God said, thank you for coming. Thank those who are watching online today. Hey, listen, guys, if you're here for the first time, pick up your gift. God bless you. Don't forget to sign up for all the different things coming up. God bless. Thanks for coming. I love you.